Welcome. I'm Dr. Vinay Prasad. I'm a hematologist oncologist, and I'm associate professor of medicine at the University of California, San Francisco. In my professional life, I see patients, I teach trainees, and I do research in healthcare policy. This is Plenary Session. Plenary Session is a podcast at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy, and you're listening to season three. On this week's episode. I'm back in Plenary Session, and this time we're on the road. We are in Dr. Bob Walker's office, and I have a discussion with Bob Walker about many aspects of medicine, leadership, SARS-CoV-2, social media. You won't want to miss this discussion. Stay tuned. You know, normally every week you hear me say, if you're a fan of this show, go support us on Patreon. You get access to the slides. I got something new to say this time. I think the good old days are over. We're living in a unique time where people are very happy to extinguish voices and ideas that they deem unfit for consumption. And so I personally have gone on Patreon. I've supported a number of people who I listen to, the podcast that I love, and I'm encouraging you to do the same. The only way we can combat this growing force of illiberalism is to support with our dollar bills podcast we enjoy. So that's my plug. I'm back in plenary session. I'm joined in person with Dr. Bob Walker. Dr. Walker is the chairman of medicine here at the University of California, San Francisco. And um, he has a, had a distinguished career in, in academic medicine, and we're going to talk about that. Dr. Walker, thanks so much for doing this. It is a great pleasure. Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. Um, listeners will, will probably know you, uh, obviously, from your, from your long career in medicine, but also from the last year where you've um, taken uh, a role in, in sort of talking about COVID policy. Um, We'll come to that, but I wanted to start in the beginning. So I was reading about you. I was reading, you know, you grew up in Brooklyn and then you did your medical school and your undergraduate at the University of Pennsylvania. Um, and then you decided to come here to UCSF. So I'm wondering, you know, when you made that jump out of medical school to go to the UCSF to do your internal medicine residency, um, you know, did you have a sense of what you wanted to do in terms of a clinical and research career at that point? Or what were your thoughts back then? Uh, they were nascent. <laughs> I uh, neither of my parents went to college, so I didn't have a whole lot of kind of understanding of the next stage. I didn't have a lot of role models who uh, who had gone through college professional school. Um, what I knew from college was that I loved policy and politics, yeah. and I wanted to be a doctor. And I sort of was trying to figure out how to reconcile that. And I actually thought those would be separate threads of my life. I would be a doctor, and uh, I didn't really understand academic medicine. I thought you, I would be a doctor. And <laughs> my parents are still wondering why I didn't just become a doctor and hang uh -huh. up a shingle. And I'd be kind of interested in the way the world worked outside of medicine. And then in, uh, late in med school, I met uh, John Eisenberg, mm. who later became prominent for running uh, AHRQ, the agency that's in charge of quality. And it, John was sort of my first role model. There's a way of being in academic medicine, being a doctor and a teacher, and studying not molecules and not hard science, neither of which I was all that interested in or, nor particularly good at, uh -huh. uh, but actually studying the system. And that was my first inkling that there might be a way of combining my interest in kind of how the system worked along with medicine. I still didn't know exactly what that meant when I got here. Mm -hmm. And then uh, over the course of three or four years, I kind of began figuring it out, largely because of AIDS. As, as AIDS, mm -hmm. AIDS hit when I was a resident, I and I became interested in studying sort of how AIDS patients did when they got really sick and decision-making at the end of life. And that was what convinced me there might be a, a part of a research career that might be interesting and I might be decent at. So you think political science informs your thinking around 
academic policy and improving systems. Yeah. I mean, I became a politics junkie when Watergate hit when uh, I was in high school, just to age myself here. And uh, and I just thought it was the most interesting thing in the world. Yeah. I, you know, now we talk about systems thinking and medical mistakes and uh, I, I, we weren't all that sophisticated back then. It was just there was a part of my brain and personality that really liked understanding big and complex organizations and how people are motivated and how they make decisions. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's politics in a way and it policy. Is. Yeah. And um, I really was truly, you know, this is not uh, false humility. <laughs> this is true. I had no clue how one might sync that up with a career in medicine. Right. Uh, but it, it sort of became clear to me that the issues that I found most interesting during my training were issues that had, they had to be clinical, but they also had policy, politics, et- economics, ethical dimensions, because AIDS exploded during my training. Mm. There were a lot of them sort of related to AIDS. So with mm-hmm. AIDS, yeah. you know, here was this huge pandemic and nobody was paying attention to it because yeah. it was hitting gay people. Yeah. Uh, and then you began to see AIDS activism, which clearly was moving the needle. And I just, I, it was clear to me that I found those issues to be fascinating. They seemed important. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, as I went on, then it became clear that I was going to try to pull together some career path that mm-hmm. I didn't understand at the time that would think about how the system works, or as you have, <laughs> you well know, mostly doesn't work. Mm, often doesn't um, how I could make a difference in maybe making it better or helping people understand those things uh, while also trying to be a doctor and a teacher and a little bit of a researcher on the side. That was what I was thinking, and I had no idea what that path, where that path would take me. That was my thoughts at the time. Then I was chief resident here, yeah. and I had never been the president of anything. I always thought I was a little bit goofy and did not have the, the, uh, the gravitas that I saw in leaders. Mm-hmm. So I didn't think I could have a path where leadership was a part of what I did. And then I was chief resident and I realized I kind of like it. Uh-huh. I like, you know, I like understanding the big picture issues. I'm a generalist. So I, I yeah. like the fact that you have to have a, you know, sort of you have to learn a lot. You yeah. have to be open. You have to be empathic. And so that was when I began to cobble together the idea that maybe I'll have a career where I do research part of the time, be a doctor part of the time, and maybe have some leadership role. I had no idea what that might be. That's fascinating. Um and to some degree, leadership is also politics. It's uh, the, 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 in the minutia of politics. Sure. Um, but in, in, in a certain way, it's kind of interesting then. Um, your, your career has had these two major moments in time, two pandemics, um, that both will probably leave a lasting mark on policy. You know, HIV AIDS had changed our drug approval um, from uh, being rather uh, hesitant uh, to being rather willing to uh, try things in emergency situations. And uh, I guess we still have yet to see the full impact of what SARS-CoV-2 will do to our policy, but I'm sure it'll change it in many different ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, not only drug approval, I mean, to me, the most interesting yeah. thing about AIDS uh, many interesting things about AIDS and HIV, but a huge one was that it was for the first time a patient group that was uh, being devastated by a disease mm-hmm. uh, rose up and said, we need to have a voice right. in in this, uh, in how drugs are approved, in how we're treated, and very importantly, in an advocating for ourselves for support and funding. You know, recognize, you know, we all look at the past year and it's extraordinary how 
woefully bad the federal response was. It was pretty bad in AIDS as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, President Reagan did not utter the word AIDS in a speech until seven years after the first reported case. Wow. And uh, the, the reasons were different. Uh, you know, Reagan was not incompetent uh, the way uh, the way Trump was, but you know, the fact that once it became clear it was largely hitting the population of gay men, uh, at least in the beginning, uh, Reagan wanted no part of it. Mm. And so uh, the fact that it was hitting gay men, gay men had a political organizational structure and a, um, uh, a, a tradition that was really emerging at the time of self-advocacy and street theater. And they very quickly said, if we, you know, we've been advocating for gay rights, but if we don't sort of get our acts together on this, we're all going to die. Mm. Uh, the the you know, mortality of yeah. AIDS at the time was 100%. Yeah. And so one of the most fascinating threads for me was watching the AIDS advocacy movement become a thing. Yeah. I had the uh, opportunity to help put together the International AIDS Conference in 1990 mm-hmm. in San Francisco. I was just finishing my fellowship at the time. And I thought I was going to be the program director of a big scientific conference. And my job was to make sure we were doing a good job judging which papers should be presented. And I found myself in the middle of an international boycott and street theater. And at the end of the day, we had, uh, you're leading a parade through San Francisco with AIDS advocates by my side and in all sorts of, you know, crazy situations. I ended up writing a book about it. And, um, uh, you know, one of my jobs during the conference was to let the police know if the hundred uh, police officers on horseback underneath the Moscone Center should come out to break out to break up a riot. Uh-huh. I didn't think that's what I was going to be doing and running uh-huh. a scientific conference. Uh-huh. <laughs> and so it became clear. Mm. And, and in the beginning, it was massively uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. I mean, here Fauci talk about this now and how wonderful it was to learn from the activists and all that. And, you know, he's very good at it. Uh-huh. But for all of us, it was really uncomfortable and really hard. You know, they were, yeah. they were yelling at us and, yeah. and, and we were trying to do what we thought was the right thing. Right. But at the end of the day, we came to understand that they were crucial. Uh, not only kind of their own knowledge about the disease, and often they knew more about it than the scientists, but the reason that, that the NIH pivoted and, and funded AIDS relatively generously was clearly because of the pressure of the activists. And so that was kind of a moment for me where my the, the part of my brain that really enjoys thinking about politics and understands that you can't separate the health part and the medical part from the political part, at least completely, um, uh, was truly stimulated. And I kind of began thinking about activism and its role in healthcare and the role of patient-oriented groups. And then, you know, my career has been sort of a series of pivots about every five to seven years when an issue arises that seems like it's in my sweet spot, Mm -hmm. that I think I might be able to make a contribution and I kind of take a deep dive into it. And that's been energizing. I've never had an opportunity to get bored because I seem to always find a new issue that's pretty cool. That's fascinating. I mean, that's a fascinating perspective that, you know, you you were you were there for so many of these struggles. And, uh, and then in retrospect, you know, I, I heard Anthony Fauci give um, um, sort of some kind statements about Larry Kramer when he passed away. And he yep. said something about how he pushed me to be better. And I remember he pushed him hard. Oh, yeah. I mean, they were harsh to, to Fauci. They were harsh yeah. to, yeah, the establishment. Yeah, Larry Kramer yelled at me once on the phone, started screaming that you are killing, mm. you know, thousands of gay people. You mm. need to know that. Mm. And, you know, I was, I don't know, I was 29 at the time. I didn't know anything about anything. And and uh, and it was like, why is he so pissed at me? But he, uh, you know, Larry was someone who 
pushed. You know, he, I, I, I've come to understand and respect activism that his job is was to push my button and mm-hmm. to push Fauci's button, mm-hmm. and and he did, and he was very good at it. Um, and at the end, I think I came to the same place that 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 Fauci came, which is a, um, a kind of begrudging, but ultimately a real respect for uh, how hard that is, how much work it takes to be an activist, how exhausting it is yeah. uh, to be on the outside pushing the insiders to move, uh, and how there's something kind of stereotypical about it. You just know you're making people uncomfortable. Yeah. You know that the system will there'll be antibodies against the pushing. Yeah. Uh, but the urgency was was tremendous. I mean, Larry Kramer understood something that was quite correct mm-hmm. that you know that thousands and tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of of gay men were dying and would die uh, unnecessarily if things didn't change at a policy level. And ultimately, you know, whether the policy level was drug approvals right. or whether the policy level was pushing for, the appropriate amount of funding at the yeah. NIH or at the CDC or within pharma companies to invest in making things better. You know, it's hard, always hard to sort of look at the counterfactual, you know, would we come have come up with AIDS drugs mm-hmm. as quickly as we did without the activists? I think the answer is almost certainly no. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the moment that AZT and then the better drugs came out, right. all of a sudden AIDS absolutely transformed from right. something that was manageable I don't think that would have happened with the without the activists. So it gave me a lot of respect for what what they do, even though you know you can look back on it and say, oh, it was you know I learned a lot and it was kind of collegial and it was great for me to see their perspective. It's not fun being yelled at by people when right. you think you're a good person. You're trying to do the right thing. Right. Well, that's fascinating. Um, by the mid 1990s, um, I guess we had had the protease inhibitors, and so HIV had been you know transformed to some degree, um, and no longer the death sentence as once was. Um, and uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like to me um, that was the moment in time around that time, um, you know, you made a pivot towards your work that ultimately led to your paper in the New England Journal with Lee Goldman about hospitalists. Um, when you started, they were only generalists. They were, they were doctors who would see patients in the clinic and they would see patients on, on the wards. Um, when did you, I mean, before you coined the term, when did you start to think about this extra specialization? Well, it started a little bit before that. I, I started my first faculty job here at UCSF. I was based at our county hospital. I that see. was in 1990. And my job was the job you want to, you're supposed to want to have. 80% research time, mm-hmm. well-funded. And I was studying how AIDS patients did when they went to the ICU. I see. Um, and I'm a general internist. I was not an infectious disease doctor. I'm not an AIDSologist clinically. I like taking care of all sorts of patients. And um, I put in a big multi-center grant. I was very proud of it. You know, I published a fair amount. And it got turned down like, it, it, it was very clear this wasn't going anywhere. Uh-huh. And I reflected on this career path of being an 80% research type. And I realized that it was not going to be something I was, that was going to sustain me through my entire career. I saw senior faculty who had that career still writing grants at mm-hmm. age 60 or 65, right. struggling for, you know, what's the next big idea? What's the next paper? Who's funding what? I didn't think I'd be very good at it. I didn't think I had the fire in the belly uh, to be that kind of, have that kind of career. And as I said, I kind of, you know, having had a couple of leadership roles, uh, chief resident, then helping to run the AIDS conference, I realized I was decent at that, kind of liked it. And I then began thinking, you know, what can and should I do? And, uh, 
in an act of administrative malpractice at the time, the chair of our department asked me to run the residency. <laughs> so from 92 to 95, it was only, I'd been on the faculty only two years. You were the program director. Uh, I was the program director uh, of the residency. Did that, thought it was my dream job, loved yeah, it, loved yeah. working with the residents. Still was doing some writing on the side. It was never that I didn't want to be a researcher. I just didn't want to be a full-time researcher whose incentive system was to close the door and write the next grant. Right. Uh, and I think that I, I've actually tried to be very supportive of the you know hundreds of people in our department that are that yeah. uh, because I admire it massively. I think it's it's really it's a hard way to earn a living. The yeah. people who do it and do it well are uh, are really precious. Uh, but I didn't think it was for me, and I didn't think I'd be great at it. So I did that for a few years. I thought that was going to be the job I did for the next 20 years, running a residency. A new chair came here, a guy named Lee Goldman. And uh, Lee is probably the best strategic leader I've met in my life in medicine. I learned a ton from him. Lee asked me to leave being residency director, which was tough because I loved the job, and become his kind of right-hand clinical person. Mm -hmm. And Lee had been a resident here 20 or 25 years earlier. And he said to me, you're going to be in charge of inpatient medicine. And as I look at our inpatient medical service, it looks like exactly the same service that I left 20 years ago. <laughs> and Lee's bias, which I've adopted but was not natural for me, I think is natural for him. His bias is if a system looked exactly the same 20 years later, it mm -hmm. can't be right. Mm -hmm. It has to be wrong because the world has changed too much. Mm -hmm. And inertia and culture are very powerful, so often systems don't change. But when you see that in an important area, you have to go in with the assumption that it's wrong and needs to be changed. And that was one of the things I learned from Lee. Uh, and, uh, and so the system that he asked me to look at was how we organized our inpatient care. Mm -hmm. And as I looked at it, I realized that it wasn't organized for uh, we don't. We didn't use the word value at the time, but we, that's what we'd say today. You know, if the goal here, it was a middle part of the managed care era. There was increasing pressure on health systems to figure out how do you deliver care that's better and safer and cheaper. And as you looked at inpatient care in academia, a huge number of the attendings were people coming out of a research lab for a few weeks a year. And the house staff had massive autonomy in part because the house staff knew more about taking care of general inpatients than right. their attendings did. Often, yeah. That didn't seem right. Yeah. In the community, the dominant system was one in which the primary care doctor was in charge of inpatients. Right. And the primary care doctors had a different job from 7.30 in the morning till 6 at night. So the yeah. patients were basically left on their own, being cared for by a revolving door of specialists, mostly. So care was very fragmented. There was no orchestra conductor. And the epiphany that I had uh, you know, so Lee basically said, let's come up with a new model and mm -hmm. had some early ideas, but really didn't, you know, neither of us knew exactly what it would be. So the epiphany was, if you think about areas in the hospital that are really complex and really important, the stakes are really high, um, two of them are the emergency room and the intensive care unit. And in both of those areas, when those areas emerge, there was no medical specialist who lived in those areas. So you had nurses, you had people doing triage, but the primary care doc would, be, basically the nurse would tuck the patient in in the ER and right. you'd wait for the primary care doc to show up. It's sort of laughable now. Right. In the ICU, the same thing. The primary care doctor was in charge, was the physician of record for an intensive care patient. And it was the rest of the hospital that was the aberration. So the, the kind of, you know, the, the, the light bulb moment was the rest of the hospital is just as complicated now. The idea of either a primary care doctor being in charge of hospital care or the kind of subspecialist or researcher coming out for a few weeks a year. Neither of those worked. 
in the emergency room and the ICU, what have, what have evolved was a generalist site-based specialist, someone mm-hmm. whose specialty was not an organ that was deranged or a particular patient population like pediatrics or geriatrics or not a given technology uh, or a set of diseases like like oncology <clears throat> or ID, mm-hmm. but, but the place, that, right. that we needed someone who was gonna be a specialist in the place. And that's, you know, I began thinking about that and noodling over it and wrote a article for our house staff newsletter, oh, circulation uh-huh. 150, <laughs> talking uh-huh. about the emergence of this, you know, we have this idea of this new field and called them hospitalists. I don't remember where I cooked up the word. And a few people read it and said, that's pretty interesting. You should write it up and send it off to a journal. Sent it to the New England Journal, published it. And uh, it was amazing because immediately I started getting calls from all over the country, people saying, what a great idea. We want to do this. How do we do this? Oh, wow. And I said, I, you know, I don't know, but okay, I'll come out and help you try to do that. We built our own version of the program here. And the other thing that Lee felt very strongly about, and quite correctly, was if this is going to be a new field, and I think he, both he and I had the sense that this might be big, although not as big as it became, uh, what does it need? Well, uh, you know, you look at a new specialty playbook. You need a society, you need a textbook, you need training programs, you need research to demonstrate whether it does work. And, and the other thing he told me was, you know, as we build this here at UCSF, if this is not as academic as our cardiology division, it won't stick. So from the very beginning, we had a mindset that not only did it need to solve a set of clinical problems and to some extent educational problems, but also be academically minded to create new knowledge. And that served us very well because uh, within a few years, the patient safety movement became a thing and then the quality movement became a thing. And it was a relatively easy call on my part. And by that time, we had a national society to embrace those movements and really try to almost own them, to be the first physician specialty that when they heard about patient safety as a, a emerging field, rather than saying, oh, you know, you're going to scare patients or we're too busy doing what we do, which is taking care of cancer patients or heart patients, for us, us as a general specialty to say, you're right, you know, medical care is unsafe and we need to be the first field that embraces that. And our mantra really became, we have two sick patients we're taking care of, the, the individual patient and the system that we work in. Mm-hmm. And that, I think, you know, that mindset of being a specialty focus, not only in individual patient care, but on making the systems that we work in work better has served the field very well. Oh, fascinating. I, so the way you tell it, I mean, it, it seems inexorable. It seems natural uh, how it progressed. But was there a moment in the beginning of the hospitalist movement um, where, you know, like many ideas, it's still vulnerable? It, it might have gone the other direction. Or do you see it as the demand was so great, um, the problem was so um, real that once the idea was offered, it was sort of an inevitable solution? Something in between. Okay. Um, the, the, the pushback was tremendous. Uh, I mean, no field loves change. Especially not medicine. <laughs> medicine is pretty resistant to yeah, it, as you yeah. well, <laughs> well know. Yeah. Um, you know, it, um, immediately antibodies come out. Uh-huh. I got yelled at in many of the best places. You know, uh, Osler would be turning over in his grave. I heard that one. <laughs> um, oh, boy. Uh, the, the funniest story was my, my, my dad, as I said, my dad didn't go to college, uh, but was always an admirer of physicians. And mm-hmm. I knew this because growing up, he would go to a party periodically. And if there were going to be doctors there, I'd look and he would be, have a sweater on and pants. And then he'd have his garage door opener on his belt. I said, Dad, what the hell is that? And he said, well, there are going to be doctors there. They have beepers. I want to have my thing. <laughs> so he's, he's sort of a funny guy. So yeah. so anyway, my father was really a great admirer uh-huh. of physicians, moved to Florida, retired, mm-hmm. 
called me one day, maybe a year or two after the article came out, and he said, uh, he said, uh, I, son, I want to. I, I'm playing tennis today with a guy. Okay, Dad, and he's a doctor. I said, okay, Dad, and he said, and I t- told him who my son was, and he'd heard of you, and I kind of puffed my chest out and I said, oh, Dad, that's nice, and then he said, he hates you. <laughs> <laughs> Of course, yeah. So yeah, I mean there was a lot of that. Yeah, yeah. I saw <laughs> the biggest the biggest uh-huh. risk was economic. I see. And, and the biggest driver was going to be economic. Uh-huh. And the economics were as follows. There was no way that a non-procedural field based in the hospital uh, that was partly there and motivated by the fact that you can be around all day and if you need to see the patient two times or three times in the day, you can do that. You're, you're in the building all day as opposed to the primary care doctor is stuck in the office. And uh, inevitably, we'll be covering the night. So you got to mm-hmm. be there all night long, mm-hmm. but you may or may not have patients all night long to see. There was no way that the economics were going to work out such that, that the amount of money coming in from billing insurance companies or Medicare was going to pay for the salaries I that see. were needed for people to do that. Okay. Which meant that it was going to require a subsidy. Somebody, some, some entity that felt like there was value there uh, was going to have to support it. And uh, our vision was that that was going to be hospitals by and large, maybe in some places insurance companies or HMOs, but by and large be the hospital itself saying that if somehow we could magically snap our fingers and have the inpatient care provided by a, by a relatively small cadre of people sure. who are in the building all the time, committed to delivering high quality, safe, and less expensive and it care. Ha- and that's a key now. And lower yeah. length of stay, yeah. Yeah. that it's worth us putting some of our money into the hopper to make that, that work. Uh, that's always, you know, it's a dicey place to be. And until the research came out and demonstrated that this was not just a good idea that had theoretical <clears throat> benefit, but that if you looked at, at hospitalists and compared care delivered by hospitalists to the care that had been delivered by primary care docs in the hospital or by, by researchers or specialists, traditional academic attendings, that lengths of stay and costs fell by about 15%. Mm. And hospital care makes up about one third <clears throat> of the budgets of, of the healthcare system. So in today's money, you know, it's a four trillion dollar year healthcare system. Right. Talking about one point three, one point five trillion dollars a year from hospital care. Right. So if you can shave costs down by fifteen percent, length of stay down by fifteen percent, and not harm quality, not right. harm patient satisfaction, then hospitals were probably going to be willing to uh, to help support it. And early on, that uh, it became clear that they were. You I know, see. the calls I was getting was from hospitals saying, can you help us build a hospitalist program? We are willing to support it. We recognize that if somehow we could magically trade our current hospital system, which is just not working. You know, patients are sitting here for extra days mm-hmm. because their doctor is the primary care doctor and that doctor is can't be here. It's right. a physics problem. The doctor right. can't be here all day long. Can't be so nobody's driving yeah. the process forward. That was the biggest risk. Once hospitals became, uh, it became clear that hospitals Either we're going to fund this or not have a hospitalist program. That was the alternative. And once the hospital CFO, I'd hear from hospital CFOs saying, well, we actually don't know whether shortening length of stay is a good thing um, because there are certain payers where it's not and certain payers where it is. I said, you should figure that out. And once you do, if it turns out to be a good thing, it looks like this model is capable of improving efficiency, shortening length of stay and doing it. I mean, to me, I was uninterested in just doing that if it was going to harm quality. In fact, I would have walked away from it. Mm-hmm. All of our early mm-hmm. studies 
asked the question, you know, does it improve efficiency? But if it does it do it at the cost of quality or patient satisfaction or medical education? And what we found in every single study was it cut costs, it cut length of stay, no downside in terms of quality. And some some studies showed a little bit of upside. Uh, medical education better. I mean, the House staff, of course, don't like change. But once we, you know, and they, when it was theoretical, it was like, oh my God, this is going to be terrible. But all of a sudden, they were working with attendings that actually knew more about yeah. inpatient medicine than they did, yeah. and, and were around all day yeah. long, knew yeah. the system, knew how to drive the system. So they actually liked it better. We worried about patients. Would patients accept it? And when you ask patients in a vacuum, what do you think of a system where now a stranger is going to take care of you? They said, that sounds terrible. But when you ask them in real life, all right, you had this person called a hospital. How did it work? There was no study that showed a decrease in patient satisfaction because the patients recognized that it might be nice in theory to have your primary care doctor be your hospital doctor. I remember once, but in real life, it didn't work. I I was hospitalized here for a surgical procedure about 20 years ago. And I remember calling, my, and I had a little neuro neurological problem afterwards, and I waited all day long for my primary care doctor to show up to call the neurologist. And about 3 o'clock in the afternoon, I called my own neurology consult. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, there was, the, you know, right. and my primary care doctor was wonderful. Right. But I knew he was seeing patients right. every 15 minutes, right. you know, across the street. It just, it was a physics problem. It couldn't work. So those were the, you know, all of that had to work out. Yes. The hospitals had to recognize that there was value here. It was worth them investing. Yes, there was objections from primary care docs, but fairly quickly once the thing became real, and we were very careful to say to primary care doctors, this is not about you not being a good doctor or not having the skills to take care of inpatients. Uh, And we also said, and, and we took it very seriously, that we have to communicate really well. We've got to keep you in the loop. We've got to make sure you you know what's going on with your patient. You right. have input if you want to. Right. But it's a physics problem. This is not about you as your quality as a physician. You simply can't do your job in your office all day long and be as available as a hospital patient needs. And that caused them to suspend disbelief until the research came out. And many of them, at the end of the day, actually embraced it and said, you know, this. I realized I wasn't very good. I wasn't able to provide the kind of hospital care I needed. And as long as the hospital's program is a good program with good people, many primary care doctors felt like it, it actually helped them in their practice. That's really, really fascinating. I think um, you're providing a roadmap. I, I hope people who are listening can appreciate that these days there are many people who want to have some change in the healthcare system, all sorts of different issues people care about. But I think some of the core principles that you outlined are the key principles they need to think about if they want to catalyze that change. One, make the incentives favor your change. Don't make them work against you. Two, bring everyone on board in a way that doesn't alienate or push them away from the issue. Um, help them see the wisdom in this in this shared path. Um, and really, I mean, I see from the way you sort of outlined that, um, the, the core tenets of, I think, leadership and your political science background, because to some degree, you are thinking like a political scientist. How do you catalyze a change in the system? I want to ask you about that. So now, you know, I, I know our time's going to be over before I before I can get to ask you these questions. I wanted to ask no, you we're about fine. we're fine. Uh, okay, about leadership. Yeah. Okay, here's my question about leadership. So, you know, your your mentor, Lee Goldman. I mean one of the most distinguished leaders in, in biomedicine. Um, you know, after his time here, he had an illustrious career at Columbia University. I think, didn't he just step down a year ago or something? Yes, as yeah. dean, right? As dean, yeah. Um, and you've had an illustrious career. I mean, many, uh, I, I can't even keep track of how many uh, top 100 lists you, you've made as, as sort of influential um, health executives. Um, my question for you is, I mean, everything you, you said about the hospitalist movement is, 
you know, I can hear in that all the sorts of things somebody who's a leader thinks about and should be thinking about. The question I have for you is, what has kept you in the academy? You must have had so many other opportunities to go outside the academy, um, to go for a private firm, to go for one of the infinite number of startups that are a stone's throw from us. Um, and yet something has kept you here. Uh, something has kept you in the academy, kept you in this in this path. And so I'm curious about that, um, you know, after, you know, what has, what has kept you in the university? I uh, pinch myself every day <laughs> about what I get a chance to do uh-huh. here. Uh, and, uh, you know, some of it's the academy generally, some of it is UCSF. I mean, I, I came out here to interview for internship because Eastern Airlines at the time had a fixed price ticket to let you fly anywhere in the country for a, in a month for 600 bucks. <laughs> Is that really? It's the only reason I came. I mean, I grew up in uh-huh. Long Island. Uh-huh. I was a New York person. I went to school in Philly, thought I would be staying stay in the Northeast forever. And that was the only reason I came. I thought I'd take a little mini vacation. And if I loved it, I'd be my 10th choice. And absolutely fell in love with the place. And it was because I'd never seen of the Northeast places that I knew well. Uh, they were impressive. People were brilliant. You know, I was, it, it was no question in my mind about the professional part of the world. But the culture was different. I mean, the, and it's, it's not rocket science. It's just you take a, a highfalutin academic place and you plunk it in San Francisco and it just chills it out a little bit. Uh-huh. But people were kind and people were soulful and people were trying to get the balance between their work and their life right. And people were rooting for each other. Uh, and that I, that I thought was amazing. So part of it has been UCSF has been a marvelous home, but part of it, I am a generalist in all senses of the word. I'm a generalist clinically. Mm-hmm. I'm a generalist as a you know what passes for research. I, you know I like big cross cutting issues. I like learning all the time. I like doing multiple things. I don't love being bored. And so the opportunity to have a job where you know, at one moment, I'm running a $600 million a year company with 3,000 employees, right. all of whom I, not all, but all but two or three <laughs> I love and respect uh-huh. and admire and learn from. Uh-huh. Uh, and then I have a chance to mentor a medical student or, mm-hmm. or, and then I have a chance to go out and be a doctor and, you know, which I still do about a month a year and, and teach. And then I have a chance to, to write a paper with people I find interesting. Um, and there's a huge amount of cross-fertilization across all those things. You know, my writing and speaking, whether it's on sort of the future of digitization of, of, in healthcare or this year on COVID, is massively informed by the fact that I still take care of patients mm-hmm. and I still have to run a big department and I see the inner workings of a big, complicated health system and what it has to do. So I think it increases my sort of value and my understanding of how at least one part of the healthcare delivery system works. And I am also very lucky in that I get a chance to do some of the corporate stuff. I'm on a couple of boards. I advise a fair number of companies. Uh, and that uh, that also has some cross-fertilization benefit. I, I think I add something to them, mm-hmm. and I learn a ton from them. Mm-hmm. You know, I certainly see more about the world of innovation and where the healthcare system is going talking to a startup than I do working in a $6 billion uh, you know, huge healthcare delivery enterprise, mm-hmm. which just doesn't pivot very quickly. That's just the nature of the beast. It's mm-hmm. a big battleship. So, I, you know, I've interviewed for a few jobs in my life, a couple in, outside of academia, and then a couple in the real world. 
And about five minutes into the interviews, I just feel like this is silly. This is uh -huh. stupid. You know, I've, I've won the lottery here. Uh -huh. And I, I am not the kind of person who feels like I've got to, you know, have some massive career change every, uh -huh. you know, 10 years to keep myself interested. <clears throat> I've sort of done that in a way, uh, as I, I mentioned before, I've sort of pivoted from issue to issue. Right, I've had, by topics. you know, a yeah. leadership role that's been relatively stable uh, or a few over the years. And I like doing them and I'm okay at them and I get to run things that I care about and that are in sync with my values. I think money is important and I pay a lot of attention to it. I've got to, you know, running a big department. But I always felt like a job in business is a little bit more fundamentally, yeah, I mean, business could be pretty mission driven. But ultimately, the bottom line is a more sort of central and dominating part of your thinking than it is in academia. So. I just haven't found a life that I like better, and uh, and uh, I'm pretty confident at my age I never will. So it's <laughs> it, it's been it's been pretty great. I guess the word that uh, jumps out at me is it seems like variety is what you like about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, the variety, the fact that I never have to do anything that that sort of conflicts with my values, uh, right? And 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 feels like you know, boy, I hate doing. I mean, I you know I have to sign a lot of papers. That's kind of boring sure. and, and and sometimes dumb, but you know, feels like a trivial part of the job. Um, you know, everything I'm doing feels like it's in service. I, I never, even the research that I do always has to feel like it's pretty grounded in patient care. Right. And the fact that I still, you know, what I'm managing and what I when I do clinical work feels like it's pretty close to the ground. You know, to go off and work for, let's say, a digital company that's right. trying to reinvent the future. You know, right. interesting stuff. I, You know, when I consult with them and talk to them, it's great. I learn a lot. But that feels two or three degrees removed from real doctors, real patients, real nurses doing, the, doing that work. That would be hard. And the variety, my wife's a journalist, and, and she always says I would have made a decent one, in part because I just love to learn. Right. And, you know, the, the job of managing a big department, the job of trying to write and think and speak about transformation, whatever transformation is, whether it was hospital care or digital medicine or COVID, involves something that um, that is a part of my brain that I, I'm actually uh, quite happy with, uh, which is uh, a, a sense of humility that I like the fact that issues are going to come at me all the time that I do not know the answer to. Mm -hmm. um, and I like the fact that that means I'm going to have to find and talk to or read really smart people who are going to teach me stuff. That's why COVID has been so fascinating. You know, it was from the very first minute of COVID, I realized, boy, I'm going to have to learn a lot mm -hmm. about virology, epidemiology, vaccinology, social justice, criminal justice when Trump was in office. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I mean, uh -huh. it, it, it was, you know, aerosol science. It was everything. Right. And it's the same thing. I'm, a, you know, as a hospitalist, yeah. you know, I'm going to start on the words in a, in a week. And I can tell you the nanosecond I start, every patient that I see, I will be able to name five people who know more about each of their problems than I do. And there are five people in this building mm -hmm. who know more each about each of their problems than I do. And I like being the person who knows sort of the big picture and is pulling it together and is the one who's being the quarterback. Uh, but that's not for everybody. Uh, you know, some people really, it's, it's a much more comfortable niche that they have really, really deep and narrow expertise in a sliver of the world. And I I'm thrilled that we have such people because I need to learn from them all the time. I think, uh, you know, you got to sort of figure out what your lane is. And I like that generalist lane. I like the variety. And there's nothing better than academia to, to, uh, to feed that. 
That's well put. You know, and actually when you say kind of it strikes a chord, I mean, the things that the other word that jumped out at me from listening to you talk is curiosity. It seems like you're curious in a number of things and um, curiosity keeps life interesting. You're always reading about something. And the thing that really resonates with me is, you know, before we started recording, I was mentioning um, you asked me if I have a tumor focus and I've always really, really liked General Hemanonk. And um, I know we live in a world where, you know, you're not you're you're a myeloma doctor, you're lymphoma, you know, and I've I've resisted as much as I can to be that categorized. um, in part because I also do health policy work, and so it helps to be broad uh, when you're interested in drug. But the tension, people. I mean, I yeah. don't know how you how do you yeah. reconcile the fact that the fields are evolving so quickly and yeah. the expertise it becomes hard to be an expert in everything. I agree with you, and um, I reconcile it by uh, working a thousand times harder. I, I mean, <laughs> you know, like because I, I I have um, the way I reconcile it, and I think to some degree you reconcile it this way too, which is you put in that effort that you. So when you're talking to a myeloma doctor, you feel like you can go toe to toe with them about the studies, and you're talking to a lymphoma doctor, you feel like you can do that as well. But that takes a lot of work. I mean, then you're at home at night reading, um, but you know that's what I love to do. Yeah. It seems like that's what you love. But let me. I, I wanted to ask you this. Leadership and 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 social media. Um, you know, um, there increasingly, I think it is the case that to be in the academy, social media is one of the forms in which you get to spread your ideas. And so, to some degree, there is this um, draw for academicians, those of us who've, you know, many years we've been publishing papers and who knows how many people read it. Maybe my mother pinned one on the refrigerator, but that's about, <laughs> that's about it. Yeah. Um, now you have, you know, uh, if done, it can be done effectively. You do it very effectively. A lot of people do it effectively. Um, I'm curious about how. I mean, you've been on Twitter for a while. You've you, you, um, obviously with SARS-CoV-2, it's 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 sort of gone to the next level because you're you're able to synthesize a lot of things and and put together you know grand rounds that I think really benefit a, a wide audience. Um, how do you balance the issues? And I guess the issue I'm most curious about is. Um, you know, you you you've pushed arguments. You've pushed delayed second dose versus second dose. Um, but the more you push arguments, you're going to step on toes. And and I think to some degree that one argument stepped on toes. And so you naturally, I think as as a leader of a major organization, you have to be a little conscious about not being the most extreme pole on any issue. Um, how, so how do you balance that? And how do you deal with the fact that although many people say constructive things to you, some people say really irritating things. And I. You know, I wish I was better than replying to some things I shouldn't reply to. But I mean, how do you balance? How do you, yeah? I guess I'm curious. How do you how do you find your your center ground where you're going to bring the gravitas of chairman of medicine to social media, a place that's a, a free for all? Yeah, yeah. It's I I love Twitter. I, I mean, I think that uh-huh. uh, I wish I'd invented it. I think it's a brilliant conceit, uh, in part for on the receptor side. I mean, the the yeah. idea of being able to identify you know, the 200 people, uh, you among them, whose opinions I value the most, and see, uh, see what they're thinking about, what they're reading, what they're watching, uh, with, uh, with, with a forced brevity is really brilliant. I mean, it's really a yeah, very clever, a clever, part, clever yeah. uh, conceit. To, to, so um, that might have been something I would have left academia for to invent Twitter, but that didn't work <laughs> out. Um, in terms of what I do there, I've always had the feeling that, you know, if the end game is publishing a paper, uh, you know, I've had the experience and been lucky enough that the hospitalist New England Journal paper, you know, really did change the world. Sure. I mean, it's the fastest growing specialty in history and happened in part catalyzed by that paper. So that's great. Uh, that happens once or twice or five times in a career if you're lucky. Mm-hmm. And most papers go out and, you know, as you say, a few people, family members read them. <laughs> uh, they don't make a ton of impact. Uh-huh. And so... 
I think it's incumbent on academics. If you are, you know, what are you in this for? You're trying to develop new knowledge and scale it. Uh, I think it's incumbent on people to think hard about how do I do that in the modern era. And, you know, I don't think everybody has to be on Twitter, but I think it's a useful tool. And I think all else being equal, the person who is able to get there, get the word out is probably going to be advantaged and have more of an impact and ultimately be advantaged in sort of promotion and being seen and getting the word out. There's sort of this interesting symbiotic relationship that's developed with the traditional media. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of the traditional media figure out who their go-to people are Mm -hmm. via Twitter. Mm partly uh, choose to call you versus someone else because you have a lot of followers and mm-hmm. you'll retweet their thing. Mm-hmm, it's mm-hmm. a little incestuous, but mm-hmm. anyway, I think there's there's a lot there. Uh, once you decide to go on Twitter, I'll take speak for myself, once I decided to go on Twitter, I felt like I'm going to put out there things that I think are interesting and important. And some of the time it's going to be fairly neutral and some of the time it will be my opinion. I'll try to do it in a way that's respectful, and and I'm not going to push buttons just for the sake of pushing <clears> buttons, <throat> but I'm not going to shy away from pushing buttons if my analysis of a complex situation has me land on, I think this is the better way to go, and here's why. I'll try to do it, at, you know, making it clear in 280 characters, which is sometimes hard, that I could see two sides of this argument, but here's why I've landed here. To me, that's fine. You know, 25 years ago, you did that with a paper in the New England Journal, right. and you pushed the idea of hospitals. Right. Similar similar right. idea, equally controversial. Right. It was an opinion, uh, you know, based on some reasonable analysis of the of the world, uh, but without much data. And, and so I think there's always been a role in academia for some level of advocacy. Right. I think the things that, have, uh, that, that are a little different about social media, one is the sort of personalness of it. Yeah. And... Um, I think we've all had to come to try to figure out sort of where do you draw that line. I have drawn the line at being a little bit more personal than I thought I would be. Mm-hmm. And I think that's that's in sync with the way I run the department. You know, as I said in the early days, I didn't think I had the gravitas to do it. But I th- have come to believe that authenticity is, is really important. And people getting to know you as a person and what you care about and what you what you are scared of. Uh, and a little bit within reason, <clears throat> who you are as a person um, is a reasonable thing to do as long as you're not silly. No, nobody cares about what I had for breakfast, but you know the fact that I'm going to visit my parents in Florida and my decision making about whether I fly and COVID and all that kind of stuff is meaningful to me. And I have found that it's, it resonates with people as long as you're sort of not too silly and self-indulgent uh-huh. about it. I think the other question that has come up certainly in the past year is how political to get yeah and that's a different issue than how whether to come down on one side of a policy right so the idea of sort of advocating for delayed second doses to me is a fairly traditional health policy policy epidemiology question you know two ways of thinking about this you model it you come down and and i could have seen doing that in in an opinion piece in jama sure no differently than social media the issue of coming down hard on Trump, that was a little bit of a, lo- a bright line that I struggled with whether to cross. And I I think you probably did the same and a lot of our colleagues did the same. It was uncomfortable because, you know, in academia, you know, I work for the University of California. Uh, do you cross that line and begin taking on political topics? And I think for many of us, we came to believe, I came to believe that it was immoral not to. 
mm. that 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 was that the political response was uh, inextricable from the public health response, the medical issues, the health issues, mm-hmm. and to shy away from it. Uh, and to and you know once I certainly once I had a lot of followers and people seemed to be paying attention to what I said on COVID, right. to say this is out of bounds. I cannot comment on the president talking about bleach or hydroxychloroquine <laughs> or whatever other uh-huh. craziness. Yeah, you know, not saying something was saying something. Uh-huh. I mean, it, 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 to me, mm-hmm. there was a, a a clear line that had been drawn uh that i had to cross and yeah. and and it would have been immoral not to and i just waited for the call i knew i was going to get from the university of california uh, higher ups at some point it's like you know you're the chair of a big department and here you are coming down on the president is that and that happened once uh, really? last year uh-huh. I, I thought it was happened earlier and more often i'm sure people thought it uh, many you know when you have that many followers people are watching and people are waiting for you to have a misstep uh, it happened once it, from a sort of policy person at the university. And I said, okay, you know, if you don't want me to do this, I'll take the University of California off my Twitter sort of banner sure. and just, you know, tweet as Bob Wachter, private citizen. Uh-huh. Oh, no, no, we don't want that. You know, <laughs> we like you getting a lot of press. It's uh-huh. wonderful. You uh-huh. know, the, the, the donors are really excited about uh-huh. everything that UCSF is doing. And it all deserved. I think we were doing yes. a lot of stuff. And I yes. I was a little bit of a megaphone for that. Yes. So that was enough pushback to, uh, to make that one. Uh, that one go away and and you know i i've been gratified by the response and i have to say one more thing which yeah you know being a 60ish year old white guy I, the last year has been painful in 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 many ways but uh, but also incredibly instructive and one thing that was very instructive to me was twitter which is i have found that um, yeah, I get pushed back periodically for things I say that are somewhat controversial. And every now and then someone puts a comment on that's nasty and I just ignore it. I, I, I have no problem with that. I think if you're going to be out in the public space, this stuff's going to happen. You just Amazing. deal with it. Okay. But by and large, I felt people have been really lovely and supportive and charitable. And when I talked about visiting my 90-year-old father who's on hospice, people, mm-hmm. oh, I hope your dad's okay and all that kind of stuff. I have really come to learn that that if you are not a white guy, the experience on social media is very, very different. Mm. If I had said exactly <clears throat> the same things, and I was a person of color or a woman or, or both, that the response I would have gotten would have been 100x different than what I got. I think and I, right. I was clueless mm-hmm. about that uh, coming coming into this. And I'm, I don't know quite what to do about that mm-hmm. other than you know try to work hard at elevate the voices of people like that and, and defend them when it's appropriate. Uh, but, uh, you know, clearly I was in a bubble and uh, it made my experience in social media better than it should have been because, uh, you know, other people do not have the same experience. That's fascinating. I mean, I mean, I, I was fascinated by many of the things you said. Um, one of the things that I that fascinated me is, um, you know, I've often had moments in my life where I was sitting by the telephone where it is going to ring. But I'm, I'm surprised to hear that, you know, even at your level, there's still a phone. There's still somebody oh, sh- you can call. There's always somebody you can call. I, you. I have a boss. <laughs> have a boss. Uh, <laughs> my boss has a boss. You know, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's yeah, anywhere you are in an anywhere. organization, you're yes. always vulnerable. And to some extent, the higher you get. Yeah. You're a little maybe more protected, but you're also more vulnerable. I mean, you know, the, the uh, habits that I, I got, yeah. you know, I began when I was, you know, maybe running the residency or running a division. But, you know, you're as you have bigger and more visible roles, uh, you've got to be a little bit more careful. 
And it's partly why I'm, you know, reluctant to go higher in organizations because I, you mm -hmm. know, I've never wanted to be a corporate person. And yes. okay. I've actually felt quite good feeling the freedom to do what I, you know, say what I thought was important. And, and I think that gets harder and harder. You know, people might think you're chair of this big department. How much higher could you be? But the next level up or two, it's really hard for you not to become sort of the corporate voice. And uh, I've managed to navigate that one okay at my level, but uh, uh, but it's not an easy thing to do. And I think it'd be very hard. People sometimes come to me as you know junior faculty mm -hmm. and say, "Can I you know be out there and you know and how do I get 170,000 followers?" And, all. <laughs> and you know, first of all, it took COVID, and second of all, it took you know. 30 years of a career right. where I'd done a whole bunch of things where people paid a little bit of attention to me. Uh, you know, it, you can't snap your fingers and make this stuff happen. Right. Um, I wanted to say about your, 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 um, your visiting your father and the, and the things you're willing to do. I, I think that that was really powerful. And I think it's because, um, you know, for better or worse, there are a lot of people who, uh, who are, are, are tentative about, and I'm talking about ID trained physicians who are dealing with COVID day in and day out, who are also balancing that with living a life and doing the things one needs to do and living a life, balancing risk and making these choices. So I think to me that what made your thing really powerful was, you know, this was obviously pre-vaccine. Um, is that you gave permission for other people to let themselves indulge in those kinds of thinking. Is it worth it to you to do this? And I, I guess some of the stuff I've been writing is, you know, I'm, I've tried to do that. Mm -hmm. um, and um, the other thing I think you said that stuck out in my mind was waiting for a misstep. Um, that's what I. That's what I wanted to put my finger about. Which about the about I think leadership is that I think there are many leaders, um, sort of at your level at institutions, who are reluctant to give their opinion on on policy issues that are really well within the scope of the, the kinds of things that we talk about, because they worry there are a lot of people waiting for that misstep, um, and so I think, you know, I wonder if. I guess I guess you've always just been somebody comfortable with being a little bit out there to put, push these opinions, and um, that is different, I think, than than the average chairman of medicine. Would you say? Yeah, probably. I mean, I, I most people that make it to jobs like this don't yes. have my background. Okay, uh, yeah. you know, I have come up through a world where you know I've written three lay-oriented books. Mm -hmm. I a lot of my career has been thinking and writing about issues that are in the public space, whether it's, you know, AIDS or how to organize different parts of care or quality and patient safety. I mean, patient safety was talking honestly about medical mistakes and how mm -hmm. we harmed and sometimes killed people. And that's my academic lineage. Mm -hmm. And so that's a very, very different pedigree than a traditional department chair who came up from running a research lab. Mm -hmm. And and it's made me much more comfortable with the media, much more comfortable being a little bit out there. Interesting. Um, and I've done, you know, I've done a ton of public speaking. I've, you know, I'm, 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 you know, it's sort of my lane has been thinking about issues that resonate with the public. That, I mean, to me, if they're not controversial, they're probably not important and they're not interesting. Uh, that's so that's sort feeling. of where I live. Yeah. And I also have had a general feeling about leadership that. Sort of like the false appendectomy rate, like mm -hmm. if, you know, every appendix you take out is has appendicitis. <laughs> you probably are enough. not taking out yeah. enough. Mm -hmm. You know, you're going to blow it periodically. Mm. And if your if your needle is set at the, I will never blow it. Yes, the risk averse you, level. You, you'll never get anything done. I mean, you never okay. do anything important. Uh, if your needle's set at, I'm never going to do anything that's controversial or that's going to piss anybody off. I mean, you're not going to change anything, and I don't think you're going to be a very good leader. 
So I've always had the mindset that I'll try to, you know, I try not to make mistakes. I try to calibrate the amount of information I need to make a decision based on how important it is. And I'm, you know, I pay attention to it. I, I'll read what I need to read, talk to the people I need to talk to before I make a decision. But then I make it and I sleep pretty well at night. Mm -hmm. I feel like I've done the best I can. It's not perfect because I'm not. And every now and then I screwed up. And when I screw up, I'm very comfortable apologizing if it's appropriate, laughing about it, uh, and moving on and not getting wrapped up into a pretzel. Um, and part of it is I sort of understand the alternative. And the alternative is I don't think you're going to be a very good leader mm. in a world where you have to become comfortable with some level of risk. And if you're, you know, that's what change is about. You're, you're never sure about what the future is going to look like. You're going to decide, is this worth taking a risk, whether it's changing out a person, you know, in a job or a new initiative or spending, you know, significant money on something. Uh, I've always felt like, you know, that's what being a good leader looks like. And the leaders I respect the most are ones that are, have demonstrated they're willing to do that. And periodically you get it wrong, periodically you get it wrong in a big way. And to me, the cost you know, if at some point I get something so wrong that somebody thinks, you know, you're not right for this job, I'll live. I mean, there are other things I can do and, and, and it wouldn't be the end of the world. Um, I don't think you can, you know, if you go into these jobs with that kind of risk averse mindset, I don't think you're going to be very good at them. That's fascinating. I've never heard anyone say that that way. Do you feel like Lee Goldman was the same way? He was yeah. willing to push it? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Really? And, you know, when Lee came, um, uh, you know, Lee was uh, Lee was sort of my view of a traditional leader. Yeah. You know, a lot of gravitas, yes. um, a little stern, uh, brilliant, smartest guy in the room, uh, clearly, uh, and uh, and incredibly strategic. Um, and I, I'm better at that than I was. I think he taught me a lot of that. You know, when Lee said we should do this, and I, you know, as a sort of young idiot would say, I don't understand why he wants to do that. I learned very quickly that he was on chess move 12 and I was on pawn to king four. Really? You know, I, he was just, that's the way he thought. And I pushed myself when he said, he said something that I didn't really agree with. I pushed myself to say, there must be some strategic reason that he's seeing this, this is going to happen, this is going to happen. So, um, I think he liked that. I think he really liked being strategic, trying to move complex organizations in the right direction. And he had very strong values, cared deeply about the organization, the mission, cared deeply about the people, but he's a, he's a sterner guy than I am. And, and so it's been interesting, you know, sort of sitting in, 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 in his chair uh, or in the chair of, you know, our legendary chairman, Holly Smith, who ran mm-hmm. the department for for 20 years, and I sometimes I'm sitting here like, how the hell did this happen? <laughs> uh, uh-huh. And yet, you know, different leaders are good for different times. Uh-huh. I think it's uh-huh. a time where accessibility, authenticity uh-huh. is valued a little bit more. Um, I think hierarchies are less steep. It's a, you know, this is a relatively informal organization. I'm a pretty informal person. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've come to terms with that, but always try to learn from people who are really good leaders, and some of that has pushed me to be bolder than I would naturally be. Uh, And, you know, boldness and being willing to embrace change is one of those things where, for some people, I think likely it's natural and instinctive. I think for me it was a learned skill 
and it's partly learning what the alternative is, which is often tolerating mediocrity hmm. or stasis. And then you do it a few times and it's like, oh, that kind of worked out okay. And, and, and this thing, this new initiative is going well or that personnel change that you struggled with for a couple of years. You know, I did it, it I tried to do it with compassion and, 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 and with some class, uh, but this new person is better as mm -hmm. things are working out better. So I think the more you do it, if, you're, if, if it goes well, then it engenders a little bit more uh, sort of creativity and a little bit more willingness to take a risk. I see. So, I mean, it sounds to me when you, I mean, you use the word strategic to describe Lee Goldman. Um, and it sounds to me like what, when you say strategic, this is what you mean by it. You mean you have to be willing to look at a, at a system and a policy issue and be comfortable with the fact that maybe what it needs is a shakeup, a big change. Mm. And you have to be comfortable with the fact that, um, that that might be controversial to some people. There'll be people happy with the way it is. And, and then the strategy of it is to align the incentives and get people on your side to believe in the change and want to see it through. And that's true for, I think, delayed second dose, which is a, which is a strategy you're offering at a national level versus a strategy off at a local level, it's all a type of strategic thinking um, where, and, and then, the, then the other thing I wanted to say was, and, and in your mind, it seems like um, the type of leader that I, I feel like is a common type of leader, the type of leader who is very risk averse and unwilling to change an organization, um, that's not a very effective leader in the, in the grand scheme of things. It depends what the okay. times are. There okay. are times where, you know, where things are stable, everything's going fine, and you kind of need to keep the trains on the tracks and it's probably okay. Uh, but uh, you know, healthcare doesn't feel like that, mm. and uh, you know, my my sense, and academia is, you know, we are a classic legacy organization. You know, we're an organization, whether it's UCSF or academia in general, or healthcare delivery organizations in general. You know, people periodically say to me, you know, look at all the change we're being disrupted. Yeah. Are you kidding me? Like my wife's a journalist. You look at journalism. <laughs> yeah. That's a field that disrupts. Go find okay. a taxi driver yeah, and ask okay. about disruption. Yes. Okay. You know, how many unemployed doctors do you know? How many big academic medical centers have closed? Hmm. Uh, how many unemployed nurses do you know? You know, the answer is none. Uh, very few. You know, I don't think we've seen anything yet. And so there is a natural tendency you know, and on both, uh, you know, if you think about the resources that we need to run places like this, they come from clinical care and they come from research. Mm -hmm. And when you look at the NIH budget and you look at the funding for clinical care over the last 20 or 30 years, we've done very well. So I <clears throat> think we quite naturally are relatively change resistant. Um, and I think the world out there is going to, is, is swirling. And I think there's going to be a lot of change out there. And that if we sit on our laurels and say, you know, I, I love the uh, late Israeli Premier Golda Meir once said, don't uh -huh. be humble, you're not that great. <laughs> uh, I think if we uh, sit there uh -huh. saying, you know, we're great, we don't need to change, uh -huh. I think we're going to get killed. Yeah. Um, you know, not quickly, and we're not going to go out of business, but I think we will have less and less relevance and importance to our patients and to the research community, to our uh, trainees. And uh, so I think it's an obligation to be try to be forward thinking, to try to think about where the puck is going. And when I think about strategic, I sort of think about it in two dimensions. Uh, you know, one is, as you were describing, sort of change management. Yes, change which management. Which is, here is the change I want to make and why and where I, you know, where I think we need to go. And what are the steps that we need to take to ensure that that works out? Um, and and that it engenders as little resistance as possible, although mm -hmm. some of it is inevitable, and sort of gets you to the place that you want to get to as effectively and efficiently as possible. And the other strategic is sort of the strategy itself, which is sort of what is that change? Mm 
and how do we understand the, the marketplace and the culture and the forces and the payments and everything to kind of figure out what the right strategy is. I, the second dose thing came about in part because it made some sense once the data were clear that, that you got a fair amount of immunity after dose one. And then I, I said, well, you know, if you get to 80% after dose one and 95% right. after dose two, and there's right. a massive backlog right. and bottleneck, it, you know, my layperson's understanding would be you kind of better off getting more people sure. dose one sooner and delaying dose two. That made sense. And when I asked people, like, why not? The answer kept coming back, oh, because that's not what they studied. Yeah. Or that's not the plan. Yeah. And I found that just profoundly dissatisfied. Yes. <laughs> like, really? That's why we're sticking with it? Because it is. And so if you I, remember the, yeah, the piece I wrote I with Ashish Shah yeah. in the Washington Post, invoke the Mike Tyson principle, yes. which is everybody has a plan until Not they're punched in the mouth. <laughs> yeah. And I just felt like we're being punched in the mouth. Yeah. And it was not that I was 100% sure that delaying the dose was the right call. What I really felt like we're not having an open and honest debate about these two alternative strategies. Right. And I could see I could see the argument for each one. Uh, but I felt like if I could help catalyze that debate, that would be a good thing. And I think that at the end of the day, we're probably not going to do it. The UK did it. Some provinces in Canada are doing it. We, we, we chose not to. I'm not sure at the end of the day that was the wrong call not to because the messaging problem was going to be very real. The pace of vaccination has picked up. But I think, I, I, maybe I'm deluding myself, but I think one of my contributions and, and, and that article's contribution was to engender a debate which partly then led people to say, we got to get this vaccine out faster. I see. You know, right. people kept saying, well, we shouldn't do that. We should get the vaccine out faster. I said, fine. Then do it. Yeah. <laughs> Let's get the vaccine out faster. I see. You know, that was a time where in California, 25% of the vaccine doses that were in the state of California in freezers had been administered. 75% yes. were sitting in freezers. That's craziness. That's crazy. So- I, you know, I think it was a healthy debate, and sometimes you win, sometimes you lose, but I, I, I think I've learned not to be afraid of the debate. Well, when I followed that debate, I mean, I thought, um, um, I, I heard people push back, and, and they often, you know, like people put, when I was talking to people about it, they said that, like, you know, I'm a stickler for doing things the way they've done in trials. And then they said, but in this case, you know, I was leaning towards your point of view, um, or at least thought it was a legitimate debate to have, and they said, you know, that's not sticking to what they did in the trial. And I was like, yeah, but it's different than a typical situation where you're giving a cancer drug to one person, the only person who could benefit is a cancer patient. Right. There's this externality of what we're going to do to all these other people. And, you know, I still hear the arguments of what's the probability there'll be viral escape. And I was like, well, I think that's proportionate to the number of times the virus is replicating at any given time. And if you give one dose to everyone, the cumulative number of viral replications is going to be lower. Okay. And then finally, the modeling paper started coming in. I th I'm aware of at least three papers that show delayed second dose is going to be better. Uh, and not just a little better, but a lot better. Yeah. And, and that's why Ontario province and UK. Ended. So, I mean, I think it was a good debate. And... Um, and I think that the other thing you point out is that um, if there's a wall in your mind that says, we got to do what they did in this study, you always have to ask yourself, is that appropriate for the moment we're in, uh, the situation we're in? Sure, you know, that's certainly appropriate for, I think, you know, the way you stent a cardiac artery in a patient giving all the appropriate medicines might not be appropriate for an infectious pandemic. In, right, know, right. <laughs> I think the pandemic sort yeah. of changes the urgency. Yeah. And the other thing that bugged me, I have to say, was people said, well, you have to stick with the science. Yes, right. Oh, boy. What does that mean? I mean, <laughs> I mean, the science of yeah. how effective dose one was yeah. was just as there in the paper and right. in the database as the, I mean, the 95% number came from the science. Yes, yeah. that was the ultimate endpoint they were looking at. But 
the data that said that the efficacy is 80 to 90 percent, you know, the, the minute before you give dose <laughs> right two was exactly in yeah. the paper on the yeah. same, in the same font as yeah. the 95 percent number. It's it's more science. Yes, it was not your intent, but that's how penicillin happened. You know, right. that's how Viagra happened. Sometimes these things are not your intent and you learn <laughs> something that's important. I think that's well put. I mean, I, I was surprised by that because, I mean, I think it's uh, one of the ways in which the word science has been sort of over overfit or overused. Um, and uh, and then the other argument that people say is, well, you don't know about the durability. I was like, well, you know, you also don't know about the durability of two doses, right? right. I mean, there's only 180 day follow up on these patients. Right. So there's I mean, a lot of uncertainty. There's a lot of uncertainty. And, you know, yeah. and, and that's that, that, that's that was the point. There's there, you know, there's uncertainty in both strategies. Right. Uh, we're humans. We can actually change our plans, and and this just seemed like a, a a a sort of classic time where it was worth thinking hard about whether Plan A was the right plan, or maybe there was virtue in Plan B. And still think Plan B would have saved more lives, but I, you know, I so it was right. a legitimate debate. Um, our time is about to be up, so I'm going to ask you the last question. The last question is, um, and I wish we had more time because I mean I find this discussion very fascinating. Um, and um, the 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 last question I was going to ask you is um, there there is such a range of COVID debates from you know two dose versus one dose uh, whether or not we should prescribe hydroxychloroquine off protocol back in the day or you know convalescent plasma did we do that the right way or anticoagulation so everything from the treatment of patients to um, if you've been vaccinated what can you do with your family and friends um, to should we open or close schools um, how do you decide uh, I mean. Um, you know, of all the debates going on, um, uh, wh how do you decide which ones that you're going to, um, you know, put your chip on the table? Um, which ones you're going to spend the time to, I don't know, think about and argue about? Um, nobody, none of us, you know, can argue about all of them. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. You know, I, 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 I very early, a year ago, almost today, I decided that one of my potential contributions in this 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 thing would be to synthesize a whole lot of information and then put it out there in a way that I hope people would find helpful. Mm. And I thought it would be an interesting thing for me to do because it's sort of the way my brain works. I like trying to learn about all this. Um, it, it took advantage of a the unique not unique, but the position I find myself in, being surrounded by experts in all of the relevant areas mm. and learning from them, and also being at high enough altitude of a big healthcare system that I could see what was going on in a healthcare system mm -hmm. um, and, and, and articulate that as well. And so how I, that was this general premise, and then what I did with that kind of varied according to the issue. And I, I didn't have a magic rule for on this one I'm going to advocate mm -hmm. and on this one I'm going to explain. Mm -hmm. it, it really, it came down to if I was discussing something, describing something, and I thought I had a point of view that I wanted to advance, I see. Um, that became what I talked about and okay. tweeted about. And so, uh, and there were times where just the media kind of, you know, there was an issue that was really hot and they, for whatever reason, wanted my opinion. So when Trump got sick, that was, you know, oh, it was yes. like remember, all, yeah. all media all the time. And I sort of had some opinions about that. Me too. But, yeah, <laughs> but, uh, yeah. yeah it, 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 it's, I'd say many of the issues were kind of waking up in the morning mm -hmm. and just feeling like, wow, that's a really important issue. And I don't hear the point of view that I have come to take on 
being articulated in a way that I think I might. I mm-hmm. And then sometimes, you know, one of the nice things about Twitter is, all right, you put it out there and almost as a trial balloon and see what happens. And people, oh, okay, that, you know, that's generating a lot of attention, interest. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then you decide whether to run with it or just put it out as a one-off and, and move on to the next thing. So it's been, it's it's been, uh, I've had to be pretty fluid and flexible about that as the year's gone on. Bob Walker, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. Um, will listeners be able to, I know you're doing the podcast in the bubble. They should check it out. There've been some great discussions. Loved your discussion about, um, with Caitlin Rivers and, uh, and Farzad about, um, you know, what you could do post-vaccination. And I think the episodes are very lively and well Thank done. You. Thank you. Um, and uh, I think listeners should, of course, check out the Grand Rounds. I mean, there's no better source of information than the Grand Rounds you've all put together. Um, what will it be like post-COVID? Will you... Uh, you got to keep something going, you know, a podcast, um, the, the grand, something. Well, the grand rounds will, will I mean, keep going. We've been having grand rounds forever. We, you know, what happened is they've turned in, you know, turned from a sleepy affair with 50 people eating <laughs> free lunch to, uh-huh. to you know, 2,000 people watching live and 100,000 uh-huh. watching later on YouTube. You know, so much of the interest is very COVID specific. Mm. And I think for many of us who've sort of been in the punditry world, and I do not expect to be on Rachel Maddow anytime soon, uh, you know, or on uh-huh. Ryan Seacrest, you know, these, these things. I've done enough of this over the years that uh-huh. I realize you can't let your ego get too far into uh-huh. it. Most of this is COVID. And, um, you know, I'm rooting for COVID to go away. This is Me too. This is sort of interesting while it's lasted, uh-huh. but uh, it's time. And, you know, my path, before COVID, I was spending a lot of time thinking about the digital transformation of medicine. Mm-hmm. And I suspect I'll go back to that and whether I take advantage of a little bit larger platform to do other things in that, not not sure yet. But uh, yeah, it feels like there's a, enough important stuff going on in healthcare. And then I've got my day job of trying to run this department. I should probably spend a little bit more energy focusing on that in the next year. Uh, I think, I suspect there'll be plenty to do. <laughs> Bob Walker, thanks so much. Thanks, Frank. You've been listening to Season 3 of Plenary Session. Plenary Session is produced by Kiana Klossner. Music by Ian Straley and Audrey Tran. The views expressed on Plenary Session are those of whoever said it and no one else. Plenary Session is not medical advice. Follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session. Until next time. <laughs>